In 1902, six members of a farming family were discovered murdered in and near their home in southwest Louisiana. The Earl family had moved to the area a decade earlier, leaving behind neighbors in Iowa who had felt wronged by their patriarch, Lemuel Earl. When they arrived in Louisiana, the Earls took up farming again, but remained isolated from their community, which is why it took almost two weeks for their bodies to be discovered. And that gruesome discovery sent the entire community into panic mode, wondering who could carry out a crime as horrific as these murders. The community and local authorities zeroed in on a suspect, an itinerant farmhand who seemed to have no motive for the murders, but he would pay the ultimate price for the crime. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard, and this is the mystery of the Earl family murders in Welsh, Louisiana. Lemuel and Mary Earl were native New Yorkers. The couple had met and married in 1872 and moved to Iowa, where Lemuel worked as a merchant and farmer. Five of their six children would be born in Iowa. Fred, Ward, Maud, Faye, and John. Their youngest son, Lemuel Jr., was born in Louisiana after the Earls relocated to the southwest part of the state in 1890. The Earl's move was one of necessity. Drought had plagued Midwestern farmers that year and taken a toll on the Earl's rice farm. And there were rumors that Lemuel Earl had to leave Iowa because of the trouble he stirred up with neighbors. After a while, the Earls gave up their farm and moved to Welsh, Louisiana for a fresh start. Welsh had originally been established in the 1880s as a homestead owned by Henry Welsh, a former Confederate soldier and plantation overseer. In 1881, Welsh cut a deal with Southern Pacific Railroad. He agreed to donate right-of-way to the railroad if their trains made his little prairie community a stop along the line. With that agreement, the community of Welsh, made up of six and a half miles of land and about 300 residents, was incorporated in 1888. Within a year of the Earl's move to Welsh in 1890, Lemuel purchased 122 acres of land in Calcasieu Parish. And by the turn of the century, the Earl family had returned to rice farming. And farming was going well for the Earls, apart from one thing that didn't change with their move, that tension with neighbors. Charles Dobson was a reporter who wrote extensively of the Earl family, following the murders in 1902. He once wrote that the Earl's neighbors would often become upset with them because Lemuel Earl was said to have taken his frustration out on their cattle. The cattle from those nearby ranches were drawn to his rice farm, would often eat the plants. Ranchers said sometimes they found cattle injured from gunshot wounds, and occasionally tongues of the cattle had been cut out to make a point. By 1902, the Earl's oldest son, Fred, was farming and living back in Iowa. Their second son, Ward, had also followed in his father's footsteps, operated a farm of his own, 
about a mile north of his father's place in Welsh. The family lived in a rented home on Ward's farm. Well, all except two of them. The father, Lemuel, was living in a cottage on his farmland. And the Earl's 23-year-old daughter, Maud, was living in town in Welsh, where she worked in a general store. The Earl family's isolation in Welsh was the reason it took a while for anyone to notice they hadn't seen the family in a while. On February 24, 1902, a man named Mr. Downs called the general store where Maud Earl was working. He asked to speak to the owner, Paul Daniels. He said a man representing himself as Ward Earl had tried to sell a pair of mules and horses to him. It seemed odd because it made Mr. Downs wonder if the Earls were moving on or having trouble of some kind. The store owner mentioned this to Maud, and she became worried, thinking something must be wrong because there was no reason for her brother to dispose of any stock from his farm. And it was in that moment when she was asked about her family that she realized it had been days since she had seen any of them. Maud hired a driver to take her to her brother's farm in Welsh to check in on the family. When they arrived at Ward's house around 7 o'clock that night, Maud was immediately concerned because two things were very unusual. First, it was quiet. It was never quiet at the farm. Second, the doors were locked, something the Earls would rarely do. Maud was overcome with fear that something was wrong. Her driver agreed to help. He broke open the kitchen window to get inside and see if anyone was hurt. Now, he entered the house with Maud just behind him. They were immediately overcome by a horrible smell. The driver found a lantern in the kitchen, lit it, and then turned around looked at Maud and begged her to go back outside while he checked the rest of the house. The driver knew the smell that was overwhelming them was the smell of death, but could not bring himself to say this out loud to Maud. She refused to leave. As the two walked into the front room of the house, it took a moment for their eyes to adjust, and Maud would forever wish she had not witnessed the horror in that room. She never expected that she would see the bodies of her mother and her 19, 17, and 12-year-old brothers, Faye, John, and Lemuel Jr., on the floor in that front room. Mrs. Earl's body had been placed on top of the bodies of her three sons, whose throats had been cut the boy's skulls had been shattered. And to make the horror even more unbearable for Maud and the driver, time had taken its toll on those bodies. And so had rats that had come into the house and torn flesh from the faces of the victims. Seemingly in shock or possibly trying to get away from the horror they were witnessing, the driver and Maud walked into the next room, where they once again faced a shocking scene. It was there they discovered the body of 25-year-old Ward Earl lying on a bed. He appeared to have been shot 
His throat had also been cut. The driver helped Maude out of the house and back into his awaiting carriage. Maude was overwhelmed by what she had seen, just in complete shock. She would later say she had no memory of being placed in that carriage or the drive back to town. The driver first took Maude to a doctor to tend to her and care for her. He then went on to the local sheriff to inform him of what he had discovered at Ward Earl's farm. News of the murders spread quickly around Welsh and the surrounding communities. Folks started asking the question the sheriff was asking. Where was Lemuel Earl, the patriarch of the family? Search parties were organized, and early the next morning, Lemuel's body was found in a ditch about a half mile from Ward's farm. Someone made an effort to conceal his body, which had been covered in straw, after he had been shot and thrown in that ditch. Six members of the Earl family were dead, murdered in a horrific way. Nothing like this had ever happened in Welsh, and people were terrified. In a community as small as Welsh, everyone looked around and asked, which member of this community was the killer? Who had done this to the Earls? Someone mentioned that a man who worked for Ward Earl was missing. That man, Alfred Edwin Batson, known to some folks around town as Ed. Alfred Batson was born and raised in Missouri in 1881. At the age of 16, he left home and worked as an itinerant farmer, riding the rails from town to town in search of work. One day, when the train stopped in Welsh, Batson got off, and decided to stick around. He went from farm to farm, asking if anyone needed help. When he got to Ward Earl's place, Ward agreed to give him a job and a place to stay on the farm. A reporter with the Crowley Signal wrote in 1902 that someone in Welsh had keyed in on the strange incident with Mr. Downs, the man who called to check in on the Earls after someone claimed to be Ward offered to sell him a pair of mules and horses. Folks in town wondered if Alfred Batson had been the one posing as Ward Earl. Authorities focused on Batson as their suspect and began searching for the 22-year-old. In fact, it didn't appear they looked for anyone else. If Batson had murdered the Earls, he had plenty of time to get away from southwest Louisiana. The last time anyone had seen Ward or Lemuel Earl alive was on February 10th, 1902. And it would be February 24th when Maude discovered their bodies. And before Maude had gone to the home and found her family had been murdered, a man witnesses said Fit Batson's description had been in Lake Charles at the livery posing as Ward Earl and attempting to sell those mules and horses. Witnesses also claim this man left a watch at a repair shop where he claimed his name was A.E. Batson. He then dropped off a gun at the gunsmith where he gave the name C.R. Batson. The suspect, Alfred Batson, also sent a package to his mother back in Missouri. Authorities later learned that package was a box full of rice. 
After the bodies of the Earl family had been discovered and authorities were hunting for Batson in Lake Charles, they found Ward Earl's buggy near the livery station. When they searched that buggy, they found a vest. Inside, they found a letter. And that letter was signed by Alfred Batson. And it was a rather bizarre letter. It pointed to Batson believing he would be dead by the time it was found. The letter was full of details about where to find each of his family members and concluded as follows. He that finds this will do the dead a justice by sending my mother or my sister word of my death and how it occurred. This is all I request, dear friend. So a long and happy life do I wish to you all. Signed a farewell, Alfred Edwin Batson. Friend to all. Ha ha. Bye bye. I'm gone. Now, a lot of people interpreted this letter signed by Batson as a suicide note, or perhaps a ploy to make police believe he was dead and gone. If that was the case, he failed. Authorities followed Batson's last movements in Welsh, where he had purchased a train ticket, headed for his home state of Missouri. And police in his home county tracked down Batson and arrested him in Clinton, Missouri, just one day after the Earls had been found dead. When Batson was arrested, all he had on him was $2. A deputy from Calcasieu Parish traveled to Missouri to bring Alfred Batson back to the jail, where police did all they could to protect him from the people of Welsh and throughout the parish who were hell-bent on lynching him for what he had allegedly done to the Earls. And the day after Alfred Batson was arrested, a coroner's inquest was finalized on the Earls. The manner in which the Earls were killed was never completely clear. Mrs. Earl and her sons all had their throats cut after it appears they were attacked with an axe or some other sharp instrument. Ward Earl appeared to have been in bed when he was attacked, which led the coroner to believe he was asleep when the killer made their move. In fact, the coroner found none of the victims seemed to have defensive wounds, and there were no signs of a struggle at the crime scene. Due to the condition of the bodies, how long the Earls had been dead when they were found, and the fact that rats had caused further injury to the corpses, the coroner could only theorize that the victims may have been drugged somehow and then attacked with an axe and knife. A very violent and seemingly very personal, rage-fueled attack against that family. Once the coroner's inquest was completed, the bodies were released to the undertaker and the earls were buried in Oaklawn Cemetery in Welsh on March 10th. The family was laid to rest in one large grave. If Alfred Batson had carried out such a horrific crime, what was his motive? Batson was known around Welsh as a nice guy. He was never in trouble with the law, was a hard worker who, from all accounts, was well-liked by the Earls. But authorities had what they considered to be strong circumstantial evidence that linked Batson to some kind of wrongdoing 
Witnesses swore it had been Alfred Batson, who arrived in Lake Charles posing as Ward Earl to sell that livestock. And someone had given the name Batson at the watch repair shop and the gunsmith. There was that strange package of rice sent to his mother, and of course, that odd letter that indicated he didn't expect to be alive much longer. But as Batson sat in jail, awaiting trial for the murder of the Earls, some folks around Welsh began to doubt his guilt, especially the women. Batson was a young and handsome 22-year-old man and had earned quite the following from women who sat vigil outside of the jail to show their support for him. Now, apart from the women swooning over Batson, there were some folks in the community who doubted he could bludgeon six members of a family just to steal a couple of mules and horses that were sold for $45. Still, that was the theory prosecutor Joseph Moore presented as motive for murder when Alfred Batson was tried for first-degree murder in April 1902. Batson's court-appointed defense team laid the ground for reasonable doubt when they claimed two men who held a grudge against Lemuel Earl had tracked down the family to Welsh and murdered them. Remember, Lemuel was known for having upset neighbors in the past, which made this theory seem, at the very least, plausible. In fact, the defense team noted two strange men had been seen in Welsh just days before the murder. The defense noted that one of the men looked a lot like Alfred Batson, even had a scar on the side of his face that was similar to a scar on Batson's face. The defense said witnesses had identified the wrong man and Alfred Batson was innocent, had been framed for the murder of the Earls. The prosecution challenged the defense to present these strangers in court, give him the chance to question them, but the defense was never able to track the identity of those men. Alfred Batson was found guilty, and the presiding judge, E.D. Miller, sentenced Batson to death. Now, Batson's defense filed a motion for a new trial, saying irrelevant documents had been admitted as evidence. Those documents included the letter allegedly written by Batson that appeared to be a farewell note, which the prosecution claimed was a confession. Batson's defense also filed for a change of venue based on their belief that Batson did not and could not get a fair trial in Calcasieu Parish. Many of the jury members had known the Earls personally, and some were said to have made public statements of Batson's guilt before and during the trial. The defense got their new trial, but the court ruled there was no evidence of prejudice against Batson, and the change of venue was denied. As Alfred Batson awaited his second trial, newspapers across the country devoted coverage to the case. It was a nationwide sensation. And the second trial was held in Calcasieu Parish starting on March 3, 1903. Judge E.D. Miller once again presided over the trial that had more drama than the first. Alfred Batson's mother, Mrs. Joseph Payne, was in court each day to support her son, just as she had been during his first trial. Other women stood by him too. Women crowded into the courtroom and held vigil outside of the court, 
to support Alfred Batson. Now, the prosecution maintained in the second trial the same they had in the first, that Batson's motive for murder was theft, the money he got for selling Ward Earl's stock. But Batson's defense countered that he had an alibi for the murders, and he was innocent. This time around, they said they had cooperating witnesses for his alibi. The defense claimed Batson had been paid and left the employee of the Earls the day before the murders and had taken to riding the rails again. He rode a freight train to Beaumont, Texas, and then went on to his hometown in Missouri, where he was arrested. The defense noted that throughout his time in jail, through countless interviews with authorities, cross-examinations in courts, and under the scrutiny of the public, Alfred Batson never changed his story. He maintained he was not capable of murder and had not killed the Earls. The defense offered up places Batson had passed through on his way home to Missouri. He offered up names and all the places he could remember where he had stopped. And the defense brought in all the people they could find. One of them was Mr. P.A. Emmett of Vinson, Louisiana. Batson immediately recognized him, said he was the barber he had visited in Vinton, which was true. He was the Vinton barber. Another witness, a Mr. Pierre Chisholm from Vinton, was brought into the courtroom, and Batson recognized him as a man he had bought candy from. Next came a waiter who Batson claimed served him when he bought lunch at a restaurant. Now, the problem for Batson and his defense was that these witnesses who were all recognized by Alfred Batson, could not say with 100% certainty that they remembered him. But they all said he looked very familiar and it was likely they had served him. This seemed to establish an alibi for Batson, but it was just as unstable as the circumstantial evidence against him. In the end, Alfred Batson was once again found guilty of first-degree murder. Alfred Batson remained stoic, but this time, when the verdict was read, his mother fainted in the courtroom. Well, some people with influence stepped in to help. Multiple members of the state pardon board petitioned Louisiana Governor William Hurd to commute Batson's death sentence to life in prison. They wrote that the evidence against him was completely circumstantial and did not rise to the level of proof. They warned the governor could be signing a death warrant for an innocent man. The governor called a meeting with Judge Miller, who had presided over Batson's first and second trial. When asked his thoughts on the case, Judge Miller told the governor he was convinced Batson was guilty. He reasoned that two juries had found Batson guilty, and the judge said his defense attorney's refusal to let Batson take the stand had not helped his case. The governor made it clear he would not be commuting Batson's sentence. But his death sentence would be suspended when his defense once again filed a motion for a new trial. But that motion was denied, and his death sentence upheld until his defense once again filed a motion for Batson's sentence to be set aside because Batson was not asked if he had anything to say ahead of his sentencing. Each time Batson had stood for sentencing, 
and was asked if he had something to say, he had boldly claimed he was an innocent man. His defense team felt he had the right to speak. The court agreed, and another sentencing hearing was held in which Batson stood before the court and maintained he was an innocent man. But Alfred Batson's fate was sealed. He was once again sentenced to death. The Louisiana Attorney General tried to help save Batson's life. He maintained Batson could be innocent and again asked the governor to consider that the evidence against this man was circumstantial. In the end, Governor Hurd refused to commute Batson's sentence to life. Alfred Batson's execution date was set for Friday, August 14, 1903. As thousands of people sat vigil outside of his jail cell in Lake Charles, Louisiana, Alfred Batson spent time receiving visitors, including his mother. Wearing a new black suit his mom had bought him, Batson wrote letters to his sister and brother. In each letter, he vowed he was an innocent man and offered his best wishes and love to his siblings. Batson then spent time with a pastor, and at 1 p.m., the sheriff came to inform him it was time to take that final walk to the gallows. Two sheriff's deputies entered Batson's cell, and with the sheriff just steps behind, Alfred Batson was led to the gallows. His death warrant was read aloud, and Batson was asked if he had any final words. Alfred Batson said he wanted to thank the sheriff, his deputies, and all the people who supported him for their unending kindness to him. Batson again declared he was an innocent man, saying he was about to meet a more just judge than he had on earth. At 1.30 p.m., the drop fell, and Batson struggled for a time. By 2 p.m., doctors declared Alfred Batson's life extinct, and his body was cut down. Alfred Batson's mother took his body home to Missouri for burial. And generations later, members of Alfred Batson's family maintain Louisiana executed an innocent man and someone else got away with murdering six members of the Earl family. Which is not how the Earl's surviving children saw it. Siblings Fred and Maud Earl agreed that justice had been carried out when Alfred Batson was executed. But they ended up feuding over what was left behind, the distribution of their family farms. Fred Earl claimed the property, saying he was the eldest and had every right to the farmland. But Maud, well, she wanted her share. The siblings' debate turned bitter, with many rounds in court. By the end of 1904, an agreement was reached with Maud being granted 50% of the estate. When it comes to the murder of the Earls, we'll never know if the right man was executed for the crime. Stephen Winnick is a folklorist and writer for the Library of Congress. In a three-part series he wrote about the murder ballad it inspired, Winnick notes that there are still two rumors that crop up from time to time. 
The first is that a sheriff's deputy overheard Alfred Batson confess to his mother that he killed the Earls. The second is that someone made a deathbed confession years after Batson was executed, saying he had been the one who killed the Earls. He wanted to confess before he met his maker. No evidence has been found that would prove either of these rumors true. It really does come down to your guts, what you believe, which has been reflected in the reimagining and retelling of this story through the murder ballad called Batson. The first known recording of this ballad was recorded by Alan Lomax back in 1934. Lomax traveled the world throughout the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, along with his father, collecting materials to document traditional song and dance for the Library of Congress. On a trip to Lafayette, Louisiana in 1934, Lomax recorded a Louisiana string band playing a ballad that they called Batson. Now, the band was led by Wilson Jones, who used the stage name Stave and Chain, and Octave Amos playing the fiddle. Not much had been written about Alfred Batson and the Earl murders since Batson's execution in 1903, which is why Lomax was intrigued by the song when he heard Jones mention that it was based on a real crime that happened in Louisiana decades earlier. Jones said he had heard versions of the story and song from friends through the years, which led him to reimagine it And that version of Batson featured 37 verses, was about 12 minutes long, a testament to how complicated the story of Alfred Batson and the Earl family was. And while the song reflects sympathy for the Earls and the man executed for the crime, Batson's mother is the hero of this version of this murder ballad, with Jones singing in the refrain that Batson cried out to his mother, that he didn't do the crime. As musical historians have noted, that ambiguity shows that we'll never know if Batson really did it. All we know is the fallout. The Earl's surviving family members were torn apart by their deaths, and Batson's mother was left heartbroken, inconsolable, over what she believed to be the execution of her innocent son. As Stephen Chain notes in Batson, there's still so many questions, but Batson can't talk. His blood got cold, and his heart stopped beating. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can hear the complete Lomax recording of Stephen Shane's Batson, along with sources and photos from this episode, in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. And if you're new and enjoy what you hear, there's lots of ways to support what is an independent podcast. I do this all on my own, so I would love for you to help in any way you can. You can rate and review the show where you're listening. That always helps other folks figure out if they want to listen or not. You can also support the show financially by joining on Patreon, becoming a member. Special thanks to our newest Southern Mysteries patrons, Mick in Canada, Kyle in Aliceville, Alabama, and Kelly 
K. As members of the show on Patreon, they hear bonus Southern Mystery shorts each month as a thanks for their support. So you can join Mick, Kyle, Kelly, and the rest of our members and join today at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. Thanks so much for listening and thanks for your support. 